Hi there, I'm Carla Nappi, and this is the New Books in History podcast. Welcome, and thanks very much for joining me today. And thanks especially because I'm so excited to share this next interview with you. This was an opportunity to talk with a very dear colleague, Cole Thrush, about his new book, Indigenous London. Hi there, I'm Carla Nappi, and this is the New Books in History podcast. Welcome, and thanks very much for joining me today. And thanks especially because I'm so excited to share this next interview with you. This was an opportunity to talk with a very dear colleague, Cole Thrush, about his new book, Indigenous London, Native Travelers at the Heart of Empire. This came out in 2016 with Yale University Press. And it's a book that is as thoughtful about the form of the narrative as it is about the narrative itself. What Cole does is he offers us a story that weaves together indigenous histories and urban histories to argue very compellingly, I think, that indigenous people around the world, in the words of the book, have actively engaged with and helped create the world we call modern, including its great urban centers. So he focuses on London, and he does this by bringing together two forms of narrative that are both, I think, equally central to the story and that both offer um, different but compelling and vital um, aspects of the story in the book. One of these forms of narrative is a series of chapters that each take us into a particular moment, a particular time frame of the story of London, and explore um, the stories of particular figures, individuals, and cases within that story. And the other narrative form is a series of interludes, and you'll, you'll hear us talk about these in the interview to come, that are free verse poetry that Cole has written based on and, and sort of woven together with and oriented around archival fragments that each focus on a particular object. And so what these interludes do is they collectively give us a different way into the story that's very grounded in the affective experience of what he is writing about. So with that, I will leave you to it and just say it's an extraordinarily beautifully written book, um, very narratively compelling, as well as being a really important story. So highly recommended. I really hope you have a chance to um, find a copy of the book, to read it, to get your hands on it, so that you can experience all of the chapters and interludes um, that we mentioned but don't have a chance to talk about in detail. And with that, I will leave you to it and just leave you with a thank you for listening, for being with us, and for your support of the channel. I hope you enjoy. I'm here today with Cole Thrush, a very dear and very brilliant colleague, to talk about his new book, Indigenous London, Native Travelers at the Heart of Empire. Welcome, Cole, to New Books in History. I am so excited to talk with you about this today. It's awesome to have you on the show. Great. Congratulations on an awesome book, etc., etc. Welcome Thank to the program. Thank you. Yeah, this is. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Me too. Okay, so let's start at the beginning mm-hmm. um, with the super broad question that is traditional for my interviews. Mm-hmm. How did you come to the field? What specifically, what brought you to work in indigenous studies and indigenous history? I, I've kind of narrativized this for myself over the decades um, in many ways, but I, I think what it really comes down to is where I grew up. I grew up in a border town um, adjacent to an Indian reservation, um, not mm-hmm. far from Seattle. And it was an intensely um, segregated space 
Um, but my mother happened to know some of the families on the reservation, and so I had a little sense that there was something going on there and, and that there was this big story that nobody was talking about. And my temperament is such that if there's a big story nobody's talking about, I want to go straight toward that. <laughs> yeah, that's I want to go straight there. But I think on a, on a deeper level, you know, having um, at least been granted a little bit of access to some of those stories when I was young, I got a very clear sense that there was another way of being on the land. Um, that there that another reality was possible, sort of adjacent to behind underneath um, the one that was dominant, the sort of settler paradigms that were there. And that was really um, illuminating for me early on. And then as I got older, started doing some of this work as an undergrad um, and working as an activist in coalition with um, my native peers, um, that really kind of mobilized this in a new way for me and politicized it in, a, in I think, a really powerful and useful way. And that eventually got me into um, indigenous history as a PhD plan. Um, and then over the last really five or ten years, indigenous studies as a, as a field has just exploded. And so it's been really exciting to be in part of that conversation. So the book that we're talking about today, um, and I will use the words of the book here, this is a quotation from the book, is a history of London framed through the experiences of indigenous people who traveled there from places that became Canada, the US, New Zealand, and Australia. How did you come to this particular project, Cole? Why London and why this particular approach to London? Sure. Uh my first book was called is called Native Seattle Histories from the Crossing Over Place, and I became really interested in graduate school about the lack of intersection between indigenous and urban histories. They're really treated mm -hmm. as though they're mutually exclusive. Mm -hmm. um, and in that first book, I um, argued that, in fact, indigenous and urban histories are mutually constitutive. They actually create each other in a place like Seattle. Mm -hmm. So when that book came out in 2007, at the time I was married to a Londoner, and we had been to London many times, and um, he had always been kind of disappointed that we hadn't gone anywhere cool for my graduate research. <laughs> you know, I, the furthest afield I'd gone was Victoria, uh, British Columbia. And um, all my friends were in Beijing and Prague and all these other cool places. And so he jokingly, when Native Seattle came out, he said, well, great, now write a book like that about London and we'll go there on your grant money. And I kind of laughed it off. But within about 10 minutes, I thought, holy crap, what a great idea. Nobody has tried to write an indigenized indigenous-centered history of the center of empire. What would that even look like? Is that even possible? And, and quite quickly, it became clear to me that there was really something there to work on. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you so much. Now, let's get into it, right? Let's actually kind of dive in. So I, what we're, we're going to do is start somewhat broad um, in order to situate the project within some major historiographical themes that you identify at the beginning, and then we'll um, continue on to, to the chapters afterwards. So you say early in chapter one, when I first embarked on this work, I thought I would be uncovering a hidden history. But you go on to say indigenous London was not hidden. And you go on to say the people in this book didn't need discovering. Indigenous people never do. So can you um, maybe start us on this journey by talking a little bit about that and the importance for you of these issues in terms of orienting us to your approach to the project? Yeah, sure. The The first chapter is uh, called The Unhidden City. And when I started this project, as you say, I, I really thought... I would be uncovering a hidden past 
And London has a long historiographical and sort of literary tradition of hidden cities within the city, um, going all the way back to the late 18th, early 19th century with people like Thomas de Quincey and so on. And, um, and we can think about even things like Mary Poppins or Neil Gaiman or um, Harry Potter, you know, Platform Nine and Three Quarters and all this. is these kinds of hidden cities within the city. The Kraken. Yes. China Mieville. China Mieville's The Kraken is a brilliant example of that. And um, that has a really powerful draw for me um, as an urban studies scholar, these kinds of um, fugitive cities within the city. And, and I just assumed that I would be doing another one of those. But what I learned very quickly doing the research was that the people that I'm writing about were in many cases celebrities. Um, sometimes their daily activities were reported in the newspapers. They were highly visible figures. Mm -hmm. They were not hidden at all. And in fact, that hiddenness is kind of a function or an artifact, really, of um, a broader historical amnesia um, and also a teleological apparatus that suggests that indigenous people don't belong in urban places and that their history is impossible in urban places. And so what I was really interested in, in then doing was kind of recovering, not discovering, um, that unhidden past of these travelers, um, many of whom were at the highest echelons of British society. Mm -hmm. And I think once we come, um, and we'll hear this in the course of talking about the book, and certainly when we come to the end, um, by the time we get to the end of the book, you revisit the nature of these pasts, right? And make the point, I think, very persuasively and very powerfully that the past is not in the past. The past is still being made. Yes, absolutely. Um, and this is, um, this is, I think, a really important kind of work that the book is doing, mm -hmm. not just for London, but more broadly for how we think about these issues and practice these issues. Sure. Okay, so the book, um, as you have already mentioned, brings together the narratives of urban studies and indigenous histories, and it argues that indigenous people around the world, in the words of the book, have actively engaged with and helped create the world we call modern, including its great urban centers. So this speaks to what you've just mentioned. Let's talk briefly about two of the major historiographical kind of themes or claims that come up early in the book and then or in this first chapter and then we'll move on from there. Okay, so there are two um, claims that the book makes about the connection between London and indigenous history right at the outset. I'm just going to name them and then invite you to speak briefly about whatever you want us to understand that you think is significant about that mm -hmm. for us to then move on into the story. Claim one, words of the book. London has been entangled with indigenous territories, resources, knowledges, and lives from the very beginning of its experiments with colonization. Okay, so Cole, why is this an important point that needs to be made? Well, I think it's really typical in broad studies of empire for indigenous people to be um, kind of passive recipients of modernity rather than co-creators of that modernity. And so that was something I really wanted to push very hard in this book. And then I also wanted to return a kind of contingency to London itself and to those larger processes of, of empire building um, to show that, that London really had to learn to become a global city. It had to learn to become a colonial space. Um, and, and the argument I'm making, um, particularly in the early part of the book, is that indigenous presence in the city um, was far more than a metaphorical presence that shows up in you know, Shakespeare or Ben Jonson or whatever. Um, beyond the metaphorical Indian, so to speak, um, there are real indigenous bodies and minds in the city that are actually informing this process that we come to call empire. 
And that physicality, um, the bodies, but also objects, right? Mm -hmm. Stuff and things. Tobacco. Um, Tobacco. And and we'll get to that actually in a few moments, I think, because that's a very, the materiality of this this history comes out um, not just in the chapters, but also in the interludes we'll talk about. So listeners, you don't know what those are yet, but you will in a few moments, Mm -hmm. and they're amazing, and we're going to talk about them. Okay, so the other claim um, that the book makes early on is one of its historiographical contributions actually speaks to some of what you've already said, but if you want to elaborate this um, uh, any further, we can do that. So this is the claim. This is, again, the words of the book. The urban spaces of London have been one of the grounds of settler colonialism. Is there anything more that you'd like us to know about that before we move on? Sure. I mean, settler colonialism as an analytical framework is really ascendant right now, I would say, in Indigenous studies. And I wanted to reclaim London as a space where that plays out, Mm -hmm. um, partially because a lot of the motivations for empire emerge from the metropole. And as we think about the kind of triangulation within settler colonialism of the metropole, the settler, and the, the, quote, native, um, there is this kind of um, triangulation where settlers are speaking back to the metropole, um, often in relationship to their fractious relationships with native peoples. So those two sides of the triangle have been really well established, but the relationship between the native and the metropole has not been particularly well established um, by scholarship. And so that that kind of leg of the triangle I really wanted to um, sort of uh, explicitly take on. Awesome. Yeah, and and I think, you know, settler colonialism is not... um, When I say settler colonialism, I'm thinking of the broad structures of power, but I'm also reserving space for really significant agency within those structures for both Indigenous people and other actors. Thank you so much. Okay, so let's get into it um, even further. The book is organized around um, what it calls at the beginning domains of entanglement. And each chapter follows a particular set of travelers to explore some way, some concrete way that urban and indigenous histories are linked. And so the chapters will successively take us through and we'll talk about some of these in detail, maybe not all of them, but here's what they are. Knowledge, disorder, reason, ritual, discipline, and memory. So we'll talk about at least some of those in the hour to come. Okay, so as I mentioned just before, the book also includes not just these chapters, but also interludes that um, bridge these chapters. There are six of them, and they are, um, as is described early on in the first chapter, uh, again, the words of the book, attempts to sidestep a traditional scholarly approach by insisting on the affective. So these are free verse poetry Um, interludes that are built in part out of archival fragments, and and we can see in these interludes those are set off in italics, and that each focus on an object. And so here's where the kind of material histories come in um, very powerfully. A mirror, a a debtor's petition, a pair of statues, a lost museum, a hat factory, and a notebook. Mm-hmm. Okay, so Cole, I, we need to talk about this. I want to talk about this. I love sure. this part of the book. Can you um, can you talk about for you the importance of these as part of the book, and also importantly, the importance of writing this free verse poetry with these archival fragments as part of your practice as a historian? Yeah, it was 
For me, it was a really powerful return to a kind of writing I did long before I ever became a historian. And so there's a, a deeply personal element to this. But in terms of how they function within the book, I, I realized that um, it, it kind of started with the first one, which is about an Aztec obsidian mirror that belonged to a man named John Dee, who was an advisor to Elizabeth I. And um, he's the man who coined the phrase the British Empire in the 1570s, and he was using this mirror for scrying, for kind of communicating with angels and so on. Um, and so from the beginning, the British Empire is already entangled with indigenous objects. But as I was writing about this this piece, I was finding that traditional academic prose just was not getting it for me, um, was, was not getting me where I wanted to be. And I realized what I needed to do was write an invocation, mm. um, an invocation to Tezcatlipoca, the Aztec obsidian god. Um, and that was picking up partially on the, the literature around um, Aztec ritual objects, but also John Dee's own writings, which have a really kind of devotional almost quality to them. Mm-hmm. And so I wanted to put those two things in conversation and have text and, and voice from the Nahua or Aztec side of things as well as from John Dee's own writings um, and put those together. So it really began as kind of a ritualized form of writing. Um, and in doing that, I realized there's something here that I could actually carry through the whole book. Originally, I thought it would be a standalone piece, like a, a foreword almost. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I realized there are these moments throughout the book where I could really do this. Um, another function, they, they serve a couple of functions, but one, one function, as, as you quoted from the book, is to insist on the affective. Mm-hmm. So they're written in the present tense. They're meant to kind of, um, as I said, sidestep or short circuit almost, the kind of purely cerebral approach to this subject. Mm-hmm. And then I also, because the chapters themselves focus so much on the agency of indigenous travelers, I wanted to remind the reader, let's not forget the human costs of colonialism. Mm-hmm. And so they tend to be darker. Um, they tend to really talk about um, pain in many ways. Um, and at the same time, I don't want to overstate pain narratives because that's so typical in talking about the, the history of colonialism. But I thought it was really important to have that piece there, um, particularly because some of the sources that I've used in these interludes are so intimate. Yeah. How did you... Um, so there are archival fragments that are woven in with um, the the other aspects of the free verse poetry that make up these interludes. So. Was there any um, anything about the process of choosing those particular archival fragments to constellate around these particular objects mm-hmm. that you'd want to talk about? Why those fragments and those moments for those objects? Well, in many cases, the fragments are all there is, and, mm-hmm. and um, you know, one of them in particular about an, uh, an Odawa war captive, an eleven-year-old boy who became the model for some statues in Westminster oh, okay. Abbey. Um, the, the um, letter from Thomas Gray that I cite, the poet Thomas Gray, um, that I use as the archival fragment, that's the only acknowledgement that this boy ever existed mm-hmm. in the archives. Mm-hmm. And so that's all I had to work with. And so to, to as you say, constellate around that an actual story um, was um, kind of the goal of that particular piece. Um, for me, the, the sort of collage approach um, made a lot of sense. And to really not just take... Um, not just, some of these things weren't even archival fragments. They were archival sources, which then I fragmented. Yeah. 
um, and interspersed with either other sources or my own writing or place names or or whatever. Um, some of them I turned backwards mm-hmm. uh, to sort of play with narrative, to play with temporality a little bit, mm-hmm. um, and to try to bridge these really vast spaces. So, um, you know, um, a debtor's prison in London with Massachusetts mm-hmm. or um, Sydney with a museum in Southwark. Um, and to try to really bridge these vast spaces and show how intimate these two worlds, if they even are two worlds, are with each other. I mean, there's so many... We could talk about this for the next couple of hours, right? Yes. So, like, and we, we have we, talked about and them And we have, exactly, yeah. and we have. Um, there are a couple of really interesting things um, about this that you've mentioned that I just want to pull out and highlight as um, being particularly important. One of them is the work that you're doing to give body to fragments mm-hmm. um, and to take the initiative and embrace the agency of the historian in fragmenting also. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think there's some there are some really interesting conversations happening across um, different history disciplines right now about and around um, fragmentariness, fragmentation as a process, and yeah. how to uh, materialize a fragment in a story. And I think what you're doing here is a really fascinating and important way of doing that. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the I think the nature of history generally, of course, is working with just these t- this paucity, right, this oblivion, right? Um, that's particularly true, I would say, working in indigenous history, just given the nature of the history. While so much has been retained in terms of oral tradition and, and other forms of knowledge, so much has been lost as well. Um, and in fact, I'm thinking about the, the Métis scholar um, Zoe Todd, who writes about um, indigenous people um, already living in a post-apocalyptic world. And that's reflected in the archive Mm -hmm. um, in many ways. And so I wanted to really kind of step right up to that edge Mm -hmm. um, of that oblivion and kind of limn it, you know, outline it a bit and say, here's here's this thing we can't see. Here's this place we can't go any further. Um, But I think the free verse um, poetry, that genre, um, allowed me some speculative space to start to fill in some of that oblivion. And, of course, that's a troubling and problematic process you know it's an imperfect process but I'm not convinced that we can do much else right right, given the nature of of the history the artifacts that we're left with and it's in a way the exception that highlights the rule of what historical practice is Mm -hmm. right which is a making of a body of a story out of fragments yeah um and another thing before we move on that I just want to highlight here is I think a really important part of the work that these interludes do, given the larger um, impact of the book itself as well, and given the larger um, themes that some of the book is taking on, is the way that the experience of the reader moving through the book, moving from chapter to interlude to chapter, is very much an experience of shifts in temporality. Shit, like time slows down. You're asking us to experience story Mm -hmm. and experience these characters in these moments on very, in very different temporal scales, right? Things slow down, they speed up, and given what I take to be um, the larger interest of the book in asking us to think about the constant making of the past mm-hmm. and our um, responsibility in that process, I think this works in a really effective way to do that without our necessarily being aware that that's happening as we work through 
Yeah, I I thought as I was writing this, you know, it's it's written with a broad audience in mind, very very much so. Um, you know, I I want to to speak to the average educated Londoner and ha- and really mess with their sense of place. Mm-hmm. Um, that's something I did with my first book with Seattle, and and it seems to have worked quite well. And so I'm hoping I can do that with London as well. And so these. Um, as you say, these shifts in temporality, in some ways that wasn't even explicitly a goal. It's just kind of the way the story emerged. But it was really important to me because it's written with a broad audience in mind to not have too much scholarly apparatus mm-hmm. in there to say, okay, now I am going to do this and I'm telling you I'm going to do it and then I'll do it and then I'll tell you I did it. Mm-hmm. Right? I, I didn't want to have too much of that. Just like... Um, you know, there's a chapter on the disciplining of bodies, for example, that obviously is influenced by Foucault and others, but you don't see Foucault in there, right? It's just that's those aren't discourses that I was interested in having mm-hmm. as um, explicit kind of conscious parts of the text. Right. Um, I wanted it to be more of an experiential thing without those kinds of intrusions. Right. Well, it works really well. Oh, thanks. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so as we move into the chapters after chapter one, we move into these chapters that take on these major themes um, that I named before. Chapter two looks at knowledge, right? Mm-hmm. The space of knowledge. Now, there's so much that we could talk about in chapter two mm-hmm. um, that uh, the Thomas Harriet and helping create an alphabet for Asamakamok. Mm-hmm. Um, there's some really fabulous um, examples and cases and stories here. But what I want to just do is briefly touch on one of the points that you bring up here and ask you to talk a little bit about what you're most interested in in terms Mm -hmm. of the work that this is doing for the book. Mm -hmm. Um, This is a a series of questions, right? How do we understand what indigenous travelers made of London? Mm -hmm. What access do we have to those perspectives? This becomes a question that's raised in the chapter. And would you speak a little bit to that? Yeah, I mean, it's it's one of the top you know, two or three questions that I get asked about this project. Sure. What did indigenous travelers think and how do you get at that? Mm-hmm. Right. And so for the early modern period, when we've got indigenous travelers coming, you know, in the 1570s and the 1610s, mm-hmm. um, you know, the sources for what any Londoner thought of these people um, are pretty fragmentary anyway. Right. This is the archive of early modern London is pretty sparse um, generally. And then you add the, the, um, sort of uh, archival problems around indigenous sources to that. It just becomes doubly more, doubly so. Um, one of the things I tried to do, though, was to really ground the experience in um, what indigenous scholars and writers from those communities have said in later generations um, and to really operate from those sorts of um, ontologies, mm-hmm. um, worldings and so on and um, that's an imperfect process um, for sure Um, and it's something that scholars debate sometimes people dismiss it as upstreaming and that it's something we're not supposed to do and I'm just I I think that's that simply becomes a good reason to not do the work right so I you know I'm just trying to do the best I can Um, and to try to make the speculative possibilities really explicit in the writing like this is one way you know, Pocahontas might have experienced that Twelfth Night performance at court, um, you know, or here's this other way, 
that she might have experienced it. Or maybe all of those ways are true. And to just make some of my thinking a little bit more explicit, with again, without, you know, sort of bogging down the reader in my own academic processes. Um, but it's, you know, overall, I would say, you know, there are some commonalities in terms of indigenous perspectives on the city across time. Mm -hmm. um, one really has to do with the critique of the ecology of the city. Mm -hmm a sense of how do these people feed themselves, which is a really salient issue for the city's history. Um, and then also a really trenchant critique of um, inequality in the city, of um, the, the really stark disparities between the wealthy and the poor, um, and a real sense from indigenous travelers, um, and sometimes we have this explicitly in the archive, saying we would never treat our poor like this. In fact, we would never have poor like this. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, there are houses here that are so big that there's nobody at the windows, and being quite shocked at that, um, that, that level of wealth and kind of ostentatiousness. There's another, um, uh, and you, you highlight some of these key patterns early on in the book, right? And there's mm -hmm. another pattern that you highlight that actually I think nicely brings us into the next chapter, mm -hmm. which is a chapter on disorder, mm -hmm. right? And this is a chapter, I should mention, um, the chapter we were just talking about extends from 1580 to 1630, and as we move into the next chapter, we move into a uh, period between 1710 and 1765, and we move into a chapter that explores disorder and violence specifically mm -hmm. in this context. Um, now, I mention that this engages one of the patterns that you mentioned, because early in the book, in addition to highlighting um, the uh, trenchant critiques of the ecology and also the disparities of wealth that were common to many of these travelers, you also mentioned gender, and you mm -hmm. mentioned the fact that many of them were men. Yeah. Now, the um, interweaving of issues of gender and indigeneity is also something that you look at as an issue in Chapter 3, right? Mm -hmm. This chapter that um, looks at the work of William Hogarth, mm -hmm. uh, right, as a window into this. It looks at um, uh, the experience of uh, the Four Kings of Canada, mm -hmm. right, an example. Um, but you also talk about um, the nature of the treatment of women in these stories. Mm -hmm. So maybe this is a, a good opportunity to talk about that set of issues in whatever way you want to. Sure. Well, I think, you know, the, the, the word for me that I think captures a lot of this, I don't remember if I even use it in the book, is refraction. Mm. That... Mm -hmm. um, gender relations in London are being refracted through these visitations by indigenous diplomats in the 18th century. So, um, so for example, one of the few indigenous tra tra female travelers during this period is a woman named Sanaki mm -hmm. um, from the Yamakra people of what's now Savannah, Georgia. And um, she is routinely portrayed as superior to British women who are scolds, who are body, um, who are vulgar, and so on, whereas she's, you know, sort of prim and chaste, and so on. And there are so many opportunities that, that Londoners, uh, male Londoners, as far as I can tell, take to use these um, visitations as opportunities to critique British women. Mm -hmm. um, you know, stories of um, um, uh, sex workers encountering um, Cherokee visitors, for example, and, and the sort of the reputational problems of the British around that and so on. So there are all these moments where um, where female gender is really being articulated through these moments, but male gender as well, right? Um, 
And so we, particularly as it relates to urban violence. And so after the, the three Mohawk delegates come in 1710, a couple of years later, there's this huge outbreak of gang violence, and the, the most notorious of the gangs calls themselves the Mohawks. Mm -hmm. And so there's this thing about this kind of robust, muscular, masculine, um, criminal engagement with the landscape of the city that becomes refracted through savagery, um, through the, the imagined savagery. Um, and so you, you see this language of savagery being applied to the urban, particularly the urban poor, again and again and again, through, um, particularly through the 18th century, which then really does bring it in nicely to people like Hogarth, um, where he's illustrating that world um, in you know, highly um, allegorical ways. Um, and that was, you know, one of the interesting things for me with this project was um, when I realized I'd be writing about people like William Hogarth and Samuel Johnson and so on, I was like, finally, I'm doing real history, <laughs> you know, and I realized, oh, my God, I'm so colonized, <laughs> you know, but, but there was something, again, about, like, this history gets to be legitimate because it involves Elizabeth I or it involves Victoria or whatever, that um, suddenly I was tapping into things where I don't have to push for this being seen as legitimate history. In a way, as, as a scholar of Native history, um, well, isn't what you do just really anthropology, mm -hmm. right? Um, and so on. So finally tapping into these, these major figures in British history to, again, refract them yeah. through um, an indigenous-centered approach. Yeah. And um, issues for listeners who are particularly interested in the way that these stories intersect with issues of gender that also will come up later on in a later chapter mm -hmm. where you take us into um, kind of disciplined bodies, and we'll get to this, but mm -hmm. gender also becomes really important there as you show us mm -hmm. because of um, it seems that uh, increasing suburbanization becomes an issue, and if suburbia increasingly is the domain of women, then there's this kind of call to urban masculinity through sport. Yes. And this is going to motivate some really interesting stories that we'll get to in a few moments. Yeah, and, and that was something I really wanted to do with this, was not to just recount the stories of indigenous travelers, but actually try to say something new about the city. That's right. This book is as much about the city as it is about the travelers. That's right. And we see that coming through in the next chapter as well. Mm -hmm. uh, chapter four, which looks roughly at the period 1766 to 1785 and um, has or takes as its organizing theme reason, right? Now, this chapter looks at some of the ways that travelers, in the words of this chapter, reasoned themselves and the city into a broader transatlantic world. There are some fascinating figures here. You introduce us to a Mohegan minister that helps us map the kind of religious landscape of London. Um, you introduce us to an Inuit shaman and his family. You introduce us to a Mohawk military leader. Um, for you, Cole, is there a particular figure in this chapter that um, you are perhaps most kind of viscerally fascinated with or interested in or want to kind of give voice to? Um, yeah. And can you tell us or tell listeners a little bit about just kind of as an example of some of the stories here? Sure. I mean, the one that, that really stuck out for me all along in this research process was a woman named Kavik. Mm -hmm. um, and she's an Inuit woman who was brought to London in 1772 um, with this shaman named Atayok, um, brought by a man named George Cartwright, um, and um, taken around the city, huge crowds following them everywhere. Um, and only uh, of the five people in the family, only Kavik survives the voyage. She's the only one that makes it home. And when I was working with Cartwright's journals at the Huntington Library, um, the story of that family, their demise, 
Kavik's survival um, and what happened after she returned back to Labrador um, really spoke to me on an absolutely visceral, emotional level. It was one of those moments in the archives that I think many of us have had where we just have to stop. And I really felt like, um, this was very early on in the research, I felt like I was being told, start with us. And so I, I have a standalone article that came out in the Journal of British Studies about that family. Um, but they've been kind of um, interleaved into this chapter. But, but Kavik's story is really a powerful one because it really speaks to both her agency but also, again, the costs of empire. Um, she, re, you know, the, the the other four people in her family die of smallpox on the return voyage. Um, she survives, but is apparently still um, um, contagious. Um, and so, within the next year, about half the Inuit people at Labrador die of smallpox, probably brought back by her. Um, and the the account of her return to Labrador is just so powerful um, that I I just thought this is where I have to start. Um, and so she's submerged a little bit in the chapter within the book, but in many ways, the book has a lot of souls, um, but she is one of them, I think. Um, one thing I do feel quite strongly about, though, is that I'm not giving voice. Mm -hmm. um, you know, these people already had and have voices, and so mm -hmm. it's not my place to give them anything, mm -hmm. um, but um, to sort of amplify is what I'm trying to do. Fair enough. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, you bet. For me... Um, so you are calling back to a moment in your experience in the archives here, um, or he here meaning in this set of stories that we're talking about, where something called to you or sort of spoke to you or something. Um, I had a similar moment uh, in the next chapter, actually, mm -hmm. where I, I was just like bowled over and had to stop reading the book for a moment. And this was a moment where you describe the last words of the king of Hawaii. Yes. Um, okay, so this is a chapter, chapter five, that takes us into a period, 1806 to 1866, and looks at the power and importance of ritual, right, in blending these worlds, uh, or in, 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 in these worlds that are a single entangled world, okay? Yeah. So the stories here focus on travelers from New Zealand and Hawaii, um, and you talk about the ways that these stories open up a Pacific London that is, in the words of the book, shaped by shared ritual. Mm -hmm. So I want to ask you to talk about that. But first, I want to just thank you for this moment where you give us the last words of this king of Hawaii. Um, he and, his, and the queen had died from measles. And his last words are, and I'm now, um, I'm going to say this as a way of just vocalizing the words of the book, not the words of the king, okay? Sure. Um, he, the last words are, I shall lose my tongue. I shall lose my tongue. Farewell to you all. I am dead. I am happy. At that moment, I had to close the book and put it down and just, yeah. you know, kind of plots. So I plots <laughs> at that moment. Um, okay, so uh, the larger theme here of shared ritual and the power of shared ritual and how this mm -hmm. manifests for you um, specifically as a theme here. Can you talk about that? What's important to you that we understand about what you think is important here? Well, I really wanted to sort of take apart these highly organized rituals of Victorian London that are so, they, they seem to us, I think, so rigid. Um, and I wanted to show them kind of being massaged or, or um, 
interpolated or whatever the the word is um, by Maori and Kanaka Maori or Native Hawaiian um, uh, rituals. And the death of Liholiho and Kamamalu, who you're talking about, um, is a really great example of that. Their their funeral, for example, when they lie in state, they're surrounded by kahili, which are these tall feathered poles that are signs of mana, of royal sort of sovereignty, really. Um, they have feather cloaks um, draped over the coffins, but it's surrounded by candles and red roses, and so it's this mix of kind of, you know, intensely British um, ritual grief, mm -hmm. but also um, absolutely a manifestation of Hawaiian sovereignty um, at St. Martin's in the Fields on Trafalgar Square, mm -hmm. right? And so um, what I really wanted to show with this chapter was the, the ways in which um, urban ritual actually had space for kind of this cosmopolitan cross-cultural um, encounter where, you know, a, a Maori sailor could be giving a, a toast in a pub, um, but it's also faikorero, it's also Maori oratory um, at the same time. So we have these moments of kind of shared complicated, fraught humanity um, really expressed through ritual. And this is a moment, or these moments include objects like Jeremy Bentham's head. Yes. Um, you know, I need to ask you about that, right? You yeah. know, I'm going to ask you about yeah. that. So, so Cole, what's up with Jeremy Bentham's head in the context of yeah. the story? Well, I'm sure many of, of our listeners will know about Jeremy Bentham, and when he died, he wanted his body to be made into an, what he called an auto icon. Um, it's this massively narcissistic event, right? Um, but what's less known about this is um, the fact that he was very impressed um, and fascinated with the process, of, the Maori process of the mummification of heads of loved ones, important enemies, and so on. Right. And he wanted that done to himself. Totally screwed it up. And if, you know, the, the listeners can Google Jeremy Bentham's head and you'll see the result. It's really grim um, and, and kind of horrifying. And um, for me, that became a metaphor for the kind of haphazardness of empire, um, the um, sort of not always very well thought out um, practices of empire, the, the, um, the macabre nature yeah. of empire as well. And so I wanted to end that chapter with that, here's a ritual that went wrong. Yeah. Um, because Bentham was woefully, and, and the doctor who did this to his body, were woefully ignorant about Maori practice. Um, it was just this kind of um, prurient fascination that just ended up going really wrong. Yeah. And, it, you know, and it resonates with the present where um, Maori ancestral remains continue to be held in museums around the world and are you know, sometimes repatriated and sometimes not. And so it, you know, it taps into issues that are still relevant today. And I think it's, it was quite clever to go from Jeremy Bentham's head to an interlude about a hat factory. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it was very clever. Yeah. I was super into that transition. Yeah, the hat factory is one of my favorite moments. Oh, really? Yeah. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so in Oxford Street, which is one of the main shopping streets of London that I'm sure many people will know, um, there is a building from the 1870s that has beaver gargoyles on top of it. And when I saw it, I thought... Oh my God, those are beavers. <laughs> Not something I would have expected on the top of a building in London. And in the 19th century, this was one of the premier places to buy um, beaver uh, top hats. And so as I started thinking about it and really started thinking about the nature of the fur trade, what it did was it allowed me to recenter London 
not as the center of the fur trade, but as uh, the periphery of the fur trade, um, that the fur trade was possible because of the labor and knowledge of indigenous people, especially women, mm-hmm. um, in sort of upper Canada, for example, in what was called Rupert's Land, mm-hmm. um, so Cree and Anishinaabe and Dene territories. Mm-hmm. And so we can think of this space in London, you know, that, that building was only possible because of the capital that was raised by the labor of indigenous people thousands of miles away. And so I started really thinking of Oxford Street as, you know, Dene territory. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it was one of those flippings of the script that I think um, I was, that I'm really committed to trying to do with this book. Yeah. And that was an interlude um, for our listeners. That was interlude five, the Hat Factory circa 1875. Um, Really great. Okay, so as we move from here um, on to the next chapter, we move to the chapter that does the work that we briefly mentioned before, and this is the work of going into discipline, and specifically disciplining bodies. Mm -hmm. This is a chapter um, that covers the period 1861 to 1914, um, and includes just some amazing figures and stories. And um, so, I, I mean, I want to talk... I want to ask you to talk about all of them, um, but we don't have time, so I'll just give you um, uh, just free reign to talk about whichever of these you want to highlight for listeners. And these include a man known as Deerfoot, and we have this image of him running. They include indigenous peoples from what's now Australia um, who are cricket players, um, Maori rugby players performing a haka, and we have another... Um, and we'll, we'll get to the Wild West show in a moment. But can you maybe just um, talk a little bit about any of these figures, um, just kind of an, as an example of what's happening here? Yeah, I mean, one of the biggest debates, I would say, in British imperial history or, or British history for this period has to do with the extent to which Britons even knew that they had an empire mm-hmm. and the degree to which it even shaped their lives on a daily basis. You know, they might be marinating in tea and, you know, awash in calico or whatever and have those beaver beaver fur hats and so on. But do they really understand that they have an empire? And one of the things that I'm trying to argue with this this chapter Um, and really with the book generally, is that absolutely, when these indigenous bodies are present in the city, people know they have an empire, and they're anxious about it. Mm -hmm. Uh, And and this is happening in the late 19th, early 20th century, when, as we talked about a little bit before, the city becomes very suburban. Um, You know, men are traveling by omnibus from from Maida Vale into the the city for work and so on, and there's this anxiety that they're becoming soft, Mm -hmm. and that they're not going to be fit to rule anymore. Um, And so um, there becomes this really strong emphasis on things like rugby and cricket and so on, these sort of manly sports, um, which are also really popular in the colonies in places like New Zealand and Australia. Um, And so there's this disciplining of both urban and indigenous bodies um, in in these spaces um, that really come together through these really, again, fraught anxieties about masculinity um, and its relationship to empire. And that is an urban crisis, Mm -hmm. um, largely. And so um, some of these travelers, um, people like Jungun Jinanuk, who's an um, indigenous Australian man, um, who's one of the, the sort of leaders of this cricket team, um, you know, and he, he's showing off his prowess as a warrior, um, something that's increasingly difficult to do back home. But he and his teammates are called on to engage in these kinds of acts of masculinity in front of thousands and thousands and thousands of Londoners. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, again, it really highlights the agency of these folks um, at the same time that it also highlights these really overweening um, 
structural processes of empire um, that lead to things like the lost generation or the stolen generations in Australia um, and the larger campaigns of genocide and, and so on. Yeah. But it's, um, I guess the thing I really wanted to get across in this chapter again was the idea that um, Londoners are constantly being confronted with their empire. Um, they're constantly being confronted with it. Uh, and the sense that they make out of it, that's where the story gets interesting. So where does Buffalo Bill's Wild West show fit into this? Because we're going to see that coming up again in the final chapter. Yeah, right? yeah. I mean, the Wild West show I, I included along with the story of these other indigenous athletes because we can really think about the performers, particularly Lakota um, people who I focus on in the chapter, are, um, you know, they're engaging in, in practices, again, the, in the sort of confinements of the reservation system, which is well established by the late 19th century, um, you know, the, the sort of the warrior culture, the horsemanship and so on is not, there's no place for that in that reservation, carceral space. Um, and, and yet people are making a living traveling the world, um, engaging in these activities um, for kings, for queens, uh, and so on. And um, so it's just a, a wonderful moment to, again, highlight these urban anxieties, these British anxieties about, well, what do we do about the American Mm-hmm. You know, who seems to be more masculine because of his encounter with savagery. Um, and then what do we do with um, people who are carrying spears to within several feet of the monarch to show off their own cultural prowess? Um, what does that mean for the future of the empire? Mm-hmm. Is there a future for the empire when we're being presented with these much more virile, um, vital kind of bodies? Right. Thank you. Um, now we move, we see Buffalo Bill's Wild West show coming up again in the next chapter. Mm-hmm. This is a chapter that extends from 1982 to 2013, so bringing it um, to the fairly recent past, that looks at the significance of memory. Mm-hmm. So we need to talk about this. Yeah, right? it's my favorite chapter in many ways. Okay, good. So I, I want to hear about why it's your favorite chapter, mm-hmm. um, but let's kind of give listeners an, un- an entree into it by maybe talking a little bit about the link between Buffalo Bill's Wild West show that we see again here, and this is a moment where you describe um, relatives of Long Wolf, one of the performers in that show, gathering at his grave over a century later to remember him. Mm-hmm. Okay, so for you, um, what's happening here? What's significant about what's happening? And can you just take us into your yeah. your sense of that? I don't use this word in the in the book as far as I remember, but this chapter of memory is not actually about the past, it's actually about the future. Mm. It's about indigenous futurity, which, according to the logics of, of empire and colonialism, shouldn't be a thing, mm-hmm. right? Indigenous peoples have no future in those logics, right? Um, and so what I'm really interested in this chapter is showing the way in which even though London has, over the course of the 20th century, largely forgotten its empire, either forgotten or disavowed its empire, I, I still am on the fence about that, um, indigenous communities, descendant communities, are still remembering the city as the space where the crown lives, as the space where their relatives went to and didn't come home, in the case of Long Wolf, who died in, in the late 19th century there. Um, this is a kind of repatriation of the city um, and, a, and a, um, 
sort of constant refrain of indigenous people saying, no, we were here, we continue to be here, we will still be here. Um, and London is a place where that plays out. Mm -hmm. um, even though this, the chapter is, to some extent, largely about death, um, there's a whole section of the chapter that's about travelers who didn't return and how they're being remembered, um, mm -hmm. how their graves are being kept active, um, and so on. Yeah. Why is it your favorite chapter? Um, I think because it works most powerfully against those um, structural narratives of, of um, sort of the logic of elimination, mm -hmm. um, that um, it is so key in my work, and I think to any of us that work in indigenous history, to try to make the indigenous world bigger, mm -hmm. um, intellectually, politically, culturally, legally, mm -hmm. temporally, spatially. Um, and this chapter, I think, does that work. It's also the chapter where I'm the most present mm -hmm. in many ways um, through leading walking tours, engaging in um, performance art interventions in the city uh, related to indigenous history and so on. So um, it's the chapter that's most vital. It's the one that's mm -hmm. where sort of you can see me doing the work. Right? Would you talk um, for listeners a little bit about some of those interventions, um, the walking tours, the performance art? Sure. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a Taltan artist um, and a scholar named Peter Morin who was doing some acts that he calls cultural graffiti in the city. So he would do things like um, go to one of the statues of Columbus in the city and put a blanket over him and retire him. Or he'd lie down at the gates to Buckingham Palace and sing Taltan songs into the earth and so on. And so we happened to meet um, through some mutual friends, and he had asked me, are there other sites of history, of indigenous history in the city that, that he should engage with? And I told him about St. Olaf Hart Street, this little church in the heart of the city where in 1577 an Inuit baby was buried. Um, and he became very fascinated with this story. And so we did an intervention, kind of a ritual intervention, um, with several other people at that site um, as a way to, you know, 376 years later, however many years it was, um, to commemorate that child. Um, and it was a really intense experience that I go into at some length, um, um, both through my own words and through Peter's words, in terms of what our intentions were with that. Mm -hmm. But again, you know, Peter's work really speaks to the idea of, you know, indigenous people have survived. Um, not all, but enough. Mm -hmm. um, and so to really highlight that in this chapter was, was really one of the goals. And you mentioned walking tours, and in fact, um, not only are you involved with that, but you also make the book into a technology for readers to um, accomplish their own walking tours, right? Mm -hmm. There's an appendix at the end called Self-Guided Encounters with Indigenous London um, that readers can use to have their own experience. So mm -hmm. um, can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, my first book, Native Seattle, has an atlas at the back of it of um, Indigenous Seattle and 127 place names that are all translated, and we talk about um, how those sites might have been used and and so on. And I wanted to do something like that. I'm very much a place-based historian, so I wanted to do something like that with the London book as well. Um, and London has a great history of sort of walking tours as a kind of urban ritual. That's really, it's something you do in London mm -hmm. and, you know, and all kinds of themes. And um, I, so it felt like a very London thing to do to offer up three self-guided tours. So two of them are walking tours. The third is on a, a Thames ferry. Um, and it's a, a way to really disorient, um, orient and disorient the reader and the walker um, and, and 
and the ferry rider um, to the city to take a space like Trafalgar Square, for example, and say, look, there's Mohawk history in this space. There's Hawaiian history here, um, and so on. And really take... Um, spaces that seem familiar and render them unfamiliar. Uh, one of the great ironies is that, you know, compared to Seattle, for example, where the landscape has been so transformed that those 127 places are very difficult to imagine, um, in London, the spaces of indigenous history are all still there. You know, it's St. James Palace. It's the tower. Um, these are sites of power that have remained. And so in some ways, it's almost easier to imagine indigenous history at the center of empire than it is in a place like Seattle or here in Vancouver. Okay. So there's also, and, and I don't think we can um, not talk about this. I just want to um, ask you to talk briefly about this. There's also a ghost in Chapter 7, mm-hmm. and this is a ghost of Pocahontas in yeah. London. What's going on there? Yeah, Pocahontas is kind of the only touchstone that most Londoners, if they know anything about this history, they've heard of Pocahontas. She dies um, on the return voyage um, in 1617 and is buried at Gravesend, just east of the city. And so in the earlier chapter where she appears in the, the late or in the early 17th century, um, I tried to submerge her there a little bit alongside, you know, in favor of other Algonquian people who were traveling during that period, including some that were part of her same journey. Um, But she's the only figure that's been kind of remembered, but she's remembered in a particular way. She's remembered in a very isolated way Mm -hmm. as kind of this doomed figure um, and a figure of indigenous disappearance, ultimately, and she becomes ghosted. Um, and so what I really wanted to do is contrast that with how she's remembered in descendant communities, who, who um, in, including some who have made journeys to London to kind of follow in her footsteps and commemorate her, um, where she's seen as a very vital figure. She's seen as a figure that represents the collectivity of her nation, of the, the Powhatan Confederacy, which continues to exist in some ways as descendant tribes today. Um, and I really wanted to push back against this ghosting because that, that ghosting of indigeneity is, is absolutely one of the most um, powerful and, and pernicious aspects of the logics of settler colonialism. Thank you. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Now, before we... There's one final question that I want to ask you um, that opens up the epilogue a little bit. Mm-hmm. And this is a question that's just going to... Just to ask you to talk about the last line of the book. The last line of the book poses a question to us um, that is powerful and fascinating and important and speaks to all the things that we've been talking about. Um, And here's what it is. When did we become real human beings? Mm -hmm. So Cole, can you talk about that as an ending and the significance of that question for you? It's been really important for me with every book I write to end it with a question, um, to open a door to dialogue um, and to further scholarship um, and to um, some self-examination on the part of the reader. Um, In Native Seattle, the last sentence was, what happened here? Mm. Um, And here it's, you know, when did we become real human beings? And for me, that's almost an indictment of empire. Um, where there's a, such a radically dehumanizing process in that, and dehumanizing not just of the people on the receiving end of empire, but a dehumanizing ultimately of the imperial um, population as well, um, that, that I believe really strongly that the process of empire dehumanizes everyone it touches, 
right? And so um, in this epilogue, which is looking at how um, ancient Londoners are being portrayed in a museum, um, often refracted again through ideas about living indigenous people, um, I wanted to really highlight um, this struggle that I think many people have trying to recognize humanity across either temporal or cultural distances. Um, and to really ask that question, when did we become real human beings? Have we yet? And it's also riffing on the fact that in many indigenous languages, um, the name for the people, the, the, the self-name for people means the real human beings. Mm -hmm. um, and so I wanted to kind of riff on that. So there's a little bit of a um, gesturing there to, to that um, particular pattern. But yeah, I just, you know, I, I feel very strongly that you know, this is not meant to be the end of the conversation. This is meant to be the beginning where I'm kind of carving out some territory and hoping that scholars um, will go deeper. You know, I wasn't able to have close ethical relationships, sort of collaborative relationships with communities because there's so many communities represented in this book. So I'm hoping that, you know, Ojibwe scholars may take stories deeper, you know, or um, Aboriginal Australian scholars might take it deeper um, or scholars allied. Um, with Aboriginal Australian people um, to take it deeper. And I think having that question at the end really provokes that. That's, that's really the goal for me. Um, that, you know, I'm, I'm very committed to the idea that history is a collective endeavor um, and that, you know, I'm, I'm, this is not the end. What a perfect note on which to come to the conclusion, actually. Sure. <laughs> um, so, Cole, you, you, know, I, you are an amazing person. This is an amazing book. I would love to talk for another few hours for listeners about this. Unfortunately, we don't have that time. And we really, there's so much in here. We really just scratched the surface. But given that, is there anything that we didn't have a chance to talk about um, that you'd like to mention for listeners before we close? I think just that the possibility of this kind of history exists in so many other places. Um, and so what I'm really hoping is that, you know, um, this may provoke other kinds of histories like this. Um, you know, sort of indigenous history out of bounds mm. um, instead of just in traditional territories, which is super important, um, but also in places like Paris. I have a graduate student who's in Rome right now looking at indigenous presences in Rome in the early 20th century. Um, what would it mean for us to kind of claim those spaces um, for indigenous history? Um, what does that do politically? What does that do intellectually? Um, and, and how might we facilitate conversations between and across fields, um, people who um, haven't talked to each other before. Um, next year I'm headlining the North American Victorian Studies Association Conference, and um, that's a place I have no business even attending, let alone <laughs> keynoting, um, given my training. You know, I was trained in the 19th and 20th century American West, and... Um, but that's what research does, right? It takes us these really surprising places. And if I can, you know, get to a place where Londoners and scholars who work in British history really take indigenous history seriously, some of its methodologies, its approaches, its politics, and so on, if, if people can really take that seriously, then I feel like my work's done. But of course your work is not done because you're working on new things now. Yeah. So now that the book is done, what's next for you? What are you currently inspired by? Well, I'm returning to the Pacific Northwest, um, with a, um, a book that's going to be a meditation on historical trauma and landscape set in my hometown, which is called Auburn, Washington. It's about an hour southeast of Seattle, um, again, paired with the reservation. And it's about four traumatic events that happened there. So a treaty war in the 1850s with massacres on both sides between Native people and settlers, 
um, the destruction of a river around 1900, um, the internment of about a fifth of the town's population in 1942 because they were Japanese. And then in the 1980s, the town became the center of the U.S.'s largest serial killer case, the Green River Killer, Gary Ridgway. And so it's about those four events and how they're remembered or silenced, but it's also going to be about my own family's westward migration to that town, um, a story that involves a lot of intergenerational violence. And, and the book is really going to be about the violences that are at the core of American history. Um, at the same time, it's going to be a little bit of a peon to the subtle beauties of this particular place, which is kind of the, the poor fringe of suburbia. It's kind of meth country, but it's still a beautiful place. Um, and the book's going to be called Slaughter Town because the town was originally known as Slaughter before it was renamed Auburn. And it was built on top of an indigenous community called Confluence. And so the idea of these histories coming together. Um, and so that's where I'm headed next. And again, it's going to be some more genre crossing. So maybe not poetry, but certainly memoir. Well, thank you for taking time out of that work to talk with me about this one. And I hereby invite you for another interview date to talk about that when it's done. You bet. Okay, thanks so much, Cole. It's really been a pleasure. Right on, thanks. You've been listening to New Books in History. Thanks very much for joining us, and we'll see you next time.